Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, the host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today I was so excited to get to talk to author and journalist Simon Parkin uh, about his new book, The Island of Extraordinary Captives. Uh, It's about British internment camps uh, in Britain during World War II, a topic I knew nothing about, and uh, and we had such uh, an interesting conversation. Um, Simon, is a, he's a great writer, super knowledgeable uh, about what went on uh, uh, in Britain in the internment camps during World War II, and I was so glad that uh, he agreed to come on and talk a little bit. Um, so uh, here's that interview, and let's get going. Hi, everyone. I am here today with author Simon Parkin. Uh, who just wrote the wonderful new book, uh, The Island of Extraordinary Captives, A Painter, a Poet, an Heiress, and a Spy in a World War II British Internment Camp. Uh, Simon, how are you today? Hey, I'm really well, thanks, AJ. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Really loved your book. Super excited to, to to talk about it. Maybe first, if you wouldn't mind, just... Tell me a little bit about your background and why you chose to write about this. Yeah, sure. So I am a journalist by profession. And uh, that's what I've done for the best part of two decades as a, as a freelancer. So I write for newspapers and magazines and websites. Um, I'm a contributing writer for the newyorker.com. And uh, I've written for Harper's in the States and a bit for the New York Times. And then here in the UK, I mostly write for The Guardian for their long read section. So that's, you know, long form reported pieces. And uh, yeah, I wrote my first narrative nonfiction book uh, in 2019, which was a, a World War II story. I, I sort of cover as a journalist uh, technology, but also video games. I write about lots of things, but my the first thing I started out was was writing about games. And so this book, which was called A Game of Birds and Wolves, was a, about a group of um, women in the in the uh, Women's Royal Naval Service in the UK who, who worked on um, a war game that helped Britain understand why we had such catastrophic losses uh, in the Battle of the Atlantic. And I suppose, you know, writing writing a book about the second world war i was allowed to do that because i knew lots about games and that sort of got me through the door to write that and then having written a book about the second world war then you're allowed to do another one that's sort of how how it seems to work in publishing and so yeah the the book that i'm here to talk about the island of extraordinary captives it came about really because i was i was interested in pow camps in britain during the second world war and, and i'd heard about this particular camp in the lake district which is this really picturesque part of england all around lovely lakes you know very green people go walking there people you know go on holiday there and there was a stately home there in the 1940s um, that was converted into a a pow camp where any u-boat captains and officers who were captured by the british were taken to this stately home and um, you know that struck me as a pretty cool location for a story and so I'd gone to the National Archives, which is our big uh, you know, data, where, where all of the records from the Second World War are kept um, in South London. And I was researching POW camps. And it was while leafing through one of these folders that I came across 
a handwritten, sort of like a fanzine, you'd call it today, but it was a handwritten newspaper full of illustrations and you know, write-ups of um, theatrical performances and things like that. And it was, it was all written in English, but it seemed to have been written by Germans who were um, you know, behind barbed wire here in the UK. And, and despite this, it, it sort of included a letter from the editor saying, tell everyone that you hate the Nazis. And so, you know, the, it was quite an arresting document. And I thought, what on earth is this? Who has made this? And, you know, and that led me into the world of internment during the Second World War here in Britain, which is, a, you know, a well-known story in the States. The, the internment of uh, Japanese nationals is something that's, you know, well understood, I think, in, in, among the American population. But the, the fact that the British government interned nearly 30,000 German, Austrian and Italian citizens um, in 1940 is not very well known in the yeah, UK. Yeah, I had no idea. That is like, a, that's a <laughs> yeah. piece of history that's sort of been not suppressed, but it's just not something that's taught in the UK. Even in the, U- even in the UK, that history is not well known? I mean, it's, it's well known among people who live on the Isle of Man, which is where a lot of the internment camps were. But yeah, I think you could stop probably, you know, 50 people in the high street and maybe one of them would know about internment here in the UK. So so give us a little bit of context then for for, for Britain just before World War II and, and right at the outbreak. What was going on in British society? What were some of the attitudes of, of the British people towards the Germans? Well, you know, I suppose the the story starts in 1933 when um, the Nazis come to power and um, they start expelling anyone with any Jewish heritage from positions of of power and from from educators. You know, if you were a lecturer in a university or an academic, then you were kicked out of your post. And so immediately you've got a group of people in Germany who are looking to to you know, for refuge, for asylum in other countries. And many of them try to come to Britain. And there are some efforts to help them, certainly among, you know, academics were found positions in universities here in the UK. And so uh, it was relatively easy, I suppose, if you worked in that field to to get into the country. But for, you know, as as the 1930s progress, it, it, you know, more and more people are trying to leave Germany. And in fact, the Nazis are trying to kick out as many Jews as they can because they want to take all of their, their money and their belongings and their businesses um, to, to fund their plans. Um, so there's this huge number of, of refugees who want to come to Britain. In fact, only a very, you know, relatively tiny number of people come to Britain, around 73,000 granted refuge, despite the fact that there were, there were millions of case files of people trying to get in. And, you know, there's a sort of, I suppose, as you might imagine would happen today, there's a wariness about letting lots of refugees into the country. That would absolutely be the case. Yeah, <laughs> right, I, I read that and I was surprised you had, you had written at one point that attitudes in, in Britain weren't so dissimilar towards Jews, weren't so dissimilar toward, to attitudes that were in Germany. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. Yeah, there was there was anti-Semitism, and it was sort of across the political divide because on the left there was a lot of pressure from trade unions. There was obviously a great deal of 
unemployment in the UK uh, at that time. And so there was a fear that suddenly if lots of skilled labourers were coming into the country from Europe, then, uh, you know, British people would be unable to find jobs. So, I mean, you know, you can really, you can imagine all the arguments that happened today were precisely the same arguments that were happening happening then. But I would say, you know, there's a ge- sort of general acceptance of refugees who did come to Britain during that time you know there wasn't there wasn't any mass suspicion in the years leading up that all starts to change obviously with the outbreak of war when suddenly there's a there's a realization that you know tens of thousands of refugees have come from from Germany and from Austria and that there's a possibility that some of them may in fact be posing as refugees and could could be spies sent by the Gestapo or, or whoever and um, so the British government in, in November 1939, as a way to sort of mitigate those risks, says that anyone who's come to the country during the previous um, six years has to stand in front of a tribunal to basically give an account of themselves, to tell their story, how they came to Britain and why they came to Britain. And then a senior member of the British judici- judiciary will ascertain whether they think that they're telling the truth, whether they are genuine refugees from Nazi oppression or whether they are in fact you know spies posing as refugees and the people on this tribunal their their attitudes are probably a reflection i think you write about this of kind of the general xenophobia of of the the anti-semitic attitudes it's really not a um well, i don't know fair is the right word but it's yeah. it's not not really a a great tribunal maybe yeah i mean i, I think it's it's fair to say that it would vary from place to place, and in some places you would have you would have judges who were well equipped to make those calls. But um, there was, in fact, you know, this is not this is not my judgment. You know, years on, at the time there was a government inquiry into the tribunal process that that, that sort of was quite critical and said, look, many of the people making these decisions were completely oblivious to the political situation in Germany, didn't really understand, you know, <laughs> what the forces at play. So you know, they, as you say, they weren't they weren't all well-equipped to make these decisions. But anyway, the decision that they were making was to categorise the, the refugees standing in front of them. Were they category A? So that is high risk, that they're either a probably a fascist or probably a communist, uh, in which case they should be immediately interned and taken off the streets. Or a category C, which was no risk at all. This is a genuine refugee from uh, Nazi oppression. And then the category B, which was sort of the one where they were unsure. And um, each category was subject to different restrictions. You know, if you were a category B, you couldn't own a bicycle, you couldn't travel more than five miles from your home or uh, own a map, things like that, or a camera. But anyway, these are the measures that the government puts into into place toward the end of 1939. And they sort of... How many people for these tribunals? How many people were were hauled before the the tribunals? Um, I think it was fifty five thousand had been through tribunals by the start of nineteen forty. I'd have to double check that, but it's around that. So it's a it's a large number of people. And you know, these it's, are most it's the majority. These are mostly foreigners. What 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 types of people are these? So the the classification, which is the same one that was used in the United States until the Biden administration uh, outruled it, so it's uh, the ca- the official category is enemy alien. So that is someone living in your country who holds the nationality of the of the country with whom 
your nation is at war. So in this case, it was uh, Germans and Austrians. And then from the beginning of June 1940, that includes Italians as well. Um, so, yeah, the, any, anyone who you was said that same enemy, category existed up until just recently. Here in the yeah, United States, I th- yeah, I think it was two or three years ago. The uh, American government said they'll never again use the term uh, "enemy alien" because it's demeaning. Which, uh, sure. you know, I agree. I agree with. I think that's the the correct decision. It's uh, and and right. particularly when applied to to refugees, this was this was also you know really some of the problem in the building xenophobia towards refugees that starts to happen in the beginning of 1940 because that term "enemy alien." I mean, it sounds yeah. quite frightening, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, despite the fact that these are people, you know, who in many cases have left their lives, their livelihoods, their savings, they've been stripped of their belongings. You know, they are the very definition of people who who need asylum and need help. Yeah, and so the one of the 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 anecdotes that you you write about in your book, so there was there were the the British authorities thought that there were there were fascist plots everywhere. And one of the the anecdotes that you write that I, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of like a, it's not really a funny anecdote, but it's just like it, it's, it's, well, you write, you write about how there was a detective who found somebody's diary (laughs) and in the diary, um, it's written that they wanted to substitute the British queen for an Italian queen Yes, and come to find, and, and the authorities took this as, as subversive writing that, oh my gosh, like this is like, uh, the beginnings of a coup attempt. Come to find out, it was a beekeeper who was was talking about the 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 queen bee in his hives, and um, you give some other anecdotes too. And I thought that was just that's so incredible that 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 people the attitudes people can be so afraid of 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 you know plots everywhere that are, yeah. are trying to uh, to overtake the country. Yeah. And I think you There's also another one from um, an, a young art historian called Klaus Henriksen, who who was a great source for for my book because he wrote his diaries and very useful. But yeah, he the police come knocking because one of his neighbours has reported him because she believes that the the knocking of the bed when Klaus is making love to his girlfriend Gretel. <laughs> contains a, a coded message and as klaus points out in his diary it's, it's very difficult to convince a police officer that you don't actually understand morse code <laughs> i remember reading that too yeah i uh that's really i thought that was so fascinating um i mean it's awful but it's you know really just like telling of yeah the attitudes going on at, at this time in uh, in britain well, let's let's talk about then. Um, let's let's talk about the internment camps. Mm. So, yours your book specifically is about Hutchinson Camp. Um, yeah. But as as we talked about at the very beginning, there's there are a lot of camps in a lot of different countries mm. right now for for people who are, are perceived to be, you know, working working with the enemy. Tell me in in Britain around this time, what's just like the the. How many camps are there? You know, what are these? What are these camps like? How big are they? Yeah. Where Where do people eat and sleep and and just yeah. just kind of give us an overview of the camps? Well, I, I mean, it's worth saying that that really until May 1940, it's only people who are being categorised A's 
like I mentioned before, who, who are sent to internment camps. And they're, you know, they're sent to, for example, Kensington Olympia, which was a very big exhibition hall in central London. So they're, they're sent to places like that. That all changes in May 1940 with the fall of France, uh, because suddenly it's much more likely that the, the Germans are going to invade Britain. And in fact, you know, the British government is is distributing leaflets that say what to do when the enemy arrives. So, so it's pretty widely understood that Britain's going to be invaded any day now. And that's really one of the things that changes the government's policy to become much more strict. And so throughout May, you see this escalation in the people who must be interned. So, so one day, all of the category Bs, right, you've now got to be arrested and taken off to camps. And then, you know, from mid from mid-May, it's also category Cs. So everyone who had previously been judged to not be a risk at all, they also now need to be arrested and taken to camps, including women and children as well who are taken to the Isle of Man. So suddenly, all across Britain, there's this need for internment camps that are going to to house these people, nearly 30,000 of them. The Isle of Man, which is a small island sort of in between Liverpool and and the coast of Ireland in the Irish Sea there about in the middle is chosen as the ideal site for for internment camps. It had also been used during the First World War for this purpose. Uh, and so 10 camps are established there. But there are also camps on mainland Britain as well. Uh, so some of them, for example, there's one very notorious camp called Wharf Mills uh, in uh, in Lancashire. Uh, this is where uh, what's known as a transit camp. So when, once the police policeman comes and knocks on your door and bundles you into a van, you're taken off and you go to one of these transit camps like Worth Mills for a couple of weeks. This was an old disused cotton factory. It had been abandoned for 10 years. The British Army move in just, I think, nine days before the first internees turn up. So you can imagine it was not fit for human habitation. There was, there were, I think, 2,000 men sharing hardly any... Um, you know, bathroom facilities and lying on uh, lice-ridden mattresses. You know, it was it was some of the people that are being turned are sixty more than sixty years old and and have pre-existing medical conditions. So it's uh, it's really a terrible place to be. Uh, I think Worth Mills was probably the worst of them, but there were others that were similarly not unfit for human habitation, I think you would say. And of course, because you've got lots of very qualified, eminent German doctors uh, among the internees because of the kinds of people who have left Germany in the years leading up to it, uh, they're able to note all of this down and the terrible conditions and you know, are very well educated about the situation um, there. After you'd spent a couple of weeks in one of these transit camps, you'd be taken probably to the Isle of Man, to one of the 10 10 camp main camps that are established there uh, and they varied some of them were in hotels around which barbed wire had been put Hutchinson which is the main camp that I write about in my book was around a sort of picturesque boarding uh, uh, a square of boarding houses which is where holiday makers typically would go and spend their summers in peacetime uh, but barbed wire is put up around this enclosure and then the men move into these boarding houses that would typically I take, think take you know six or seven people when they were boarding houses, but now have more than 30 men, you know, five or six to a room cramped together, lying on the floor. So yeah, pretty cramped conditions, but better than and perhaps these what are, they'd had before. These are just the 
transit camps or these are the actual internment camps? No, so yeah, the ones on on the Isle of Man are the are the the long term camps where you where you'd end up. And as you mentioned before as well, there was also a big drive to send as many internees as possible abroad. So a deal is struck with Canada, which agrees to take um, a few thousand of these internees as well as German POWs. And the ships start leaving in, in June 1940, but they, they quickly come to an end because of a notorious incident when the SS Arundora Star uh, is sailing from Liverpool across to Canada and is um, picked up by a U-boat which uh, torpedoes the ship and it sinks with, the I think, 650 people died uh, in that in that wreck. So once that happens and there's, you know, the outcry at what's happened in, in Britain, the sort of internment, but the, the government policy of shipping off internees to, to Canada and to Australia is reversed. And, and then internees are only being held in the British Isles and the Isle of Man. So, so how, are there just the, the two camps on the Isle of Man? How many camps are in, in Britain? No, there were t- 10 camps. Um, there were... Maybe a couple more very small ones that only lasted for a couple of weeks. I think there was one called Granville, but yeah, for for sort of in the long term establishment, there were there were ten camps. And as the war progresses and people start to be let out, that number reduces. And Hutchinson remains one of the last internment camps um, still still functioning. Yeah. Now you had you had just mentioned this uh, that I'm curious about that. At least one of these camps, maybe more, were used during World War One as well. Uh, yeah, they were. It was different sites, but uh, yes, the the Isle of Man was used for for internment purposes during the First World War as well. It was slightly Not the same different. Site, though. Not the same site. They were under tents, I think, in the First World War. But there were, you know, similarly poor conditions, and there was a riot during that, during which a number of internees were shot by British soldiers. And the whole episode had been so terrible during the First World War that that actually afterwards the government says, never again are we going to repeat the internment measures. And then, you know, lo and behold, uh, not that not that many years thereafter, it's all repeated and on a much greater scale as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about. So your book really focuses. So the title or the subtitle of your book, A Painter, a Poet, an Heiress, and a Spy. So let's talk about those those characters, those people. Well, let's start with the painter, Peter Fleischman, who really is the central character of this book. Yeah. What's Who is Peter Fleischman? What's his background, his personality? What led him to Britain and what led him to the camp? Yeah, so uh, Peter is a, he's 16 years old when when he sort of enters the story of the book. He's living in Berlin. He actually comes from quite a wealthy family um, of, uh, uh, his grandfather was a banker and who had uh, had had, uh, you know, had, had, had done very well from that until the Great Depression, which affects Germany as well, because many of the banks had their money in America. So there's that knock-on effect. And uh, so he's reduced to poverty and then dies in the 1930s. And Peter is left without a carer because his parents, he's always been told, were were murdered by the Nazis. They were, they were anti-fascist journalists and uh, the steering of their car was apparently tampered with and they drown in the One Sea Lake. That's the story he's told for why he's got no parents. So in the in the early 30s, he goes to the Auerbach Orphanage in Berlin, uh, becomes an orphan there. And then during the November pogroms, 
the British government, uh, you know, together with aid agencies, comes up with the very famous Kinder Transport Initiative to try and take children out of the city. And because he's an orphan in, in Berlin, he qualifies, and he's under 17, he qualifies for a position on the very first train to leave uh, to leave Berlin with, with Berlin children on it. And um, so he comes to Britain. So there's this great irony where Peter has been rescued by the British state, given a, given asylum and refuge in the country and brought out by them. And he, he lands in Harwich on the Essex coastline and is put up by a family in Manchester, goes to live with them. And it's actually kind of, it's he's, because he's older, it's his life is a little bit more difficult maybe than some of the younger yeah, orphans. Yeah, that's probably true. they're families are more willing to take them in yeah um, so peter has kind of a rough time when he first arrives to, to britain right yeah i mean that's the sort of more nuanced side of the kinder transport story is that you know in fact when the pe- appeals are put out for british families to to come and take take in you know kinder transport children have them live with them and you know they show a preference for young girls and blonde sort of slightly mirroring the the nazi's own judgments on uh, on sort of uh, Aryan standards, unfortunately, but so yeah, you're right. You know, Peter Peter turns seventeen quite soon after he arrives in Britain, and um, so yeah, he's treated differently, and he's put to work. But he's a, he's an aspiring artist. Uh, he was at a, an art college in Berlin before the Nazis uh, say that Jewish children can no longer study there, and that's his dream. He's sort of designing posters, and when he gets to Britain, he gets this job working to uh, colorize old photographs from the First World War, essentially. Um, and yeah, he, once the mass internment policy comes into effect in May, 1940, he's arrested along with many other people in Manchester where he's living at the time. He's taken to Wharf Mills, that terrible cotton mill that I, that I mentioned earlier. And from there, about two weeks later, he gets on the ferry that carries him across to the, um, well, actually, no, he goes to another camp for a little while called Prees Heath. But then after that, he goes on to Hutchinson on the Isle of Man and, uh, yeah, he's so that, that that's the camp that he lands in, and it just so happens that that Hutchinson has this very high density of accomplished artists who have also fled Germany, and so Peter has this slightly strange situation where, for many of the men, they're they're experiencing a great deal of depression. They've been taken away from their families. They've been locked up indefinitely. There's been no trial. They've got no charge against them, and also they're fearing German invasion. Well. Peter's a bit younger and he's an aspiring artist and he suddenly finds himself in this community of very well-known, in some cases, world-famous artists who are also interned in the camp, who are you know, putting on art lessons and staging art exhibitions. And so he has quite an interesting time of it because for him, it's, uh, it's much more exciting. Now, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you, you mentioned this, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning that Peter is actually a Jewish orphan, right? Yeah. So, and I thought this was very fascinating in your book that um, obviously he's put in the camp because he's, you know, there's a suspicion that he could be spying for the German government. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he, he is Jewish and there are a lot of Jews who are put into the camp yeah. who are just <laughs> completely opposed to, to obviously Nazism and the Nazi regime. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in fact, it was 80% uh, Jewish people in, in the camp. And there's this great story that's passed around a lot by the by the, by those who live through this of arriving on the Isle of Man and overhearing a British officer say to his subordinate, 
I hadn't, I never had any idea that so many Jews were Nazis. <laughs> and it just gives you a sense that, you know, the complete lack of understanding of who these people were, of how they had come to be in Britain, and it, of actually, you know, the Germany's, the German government's position towards them, where it, where it wanted to strip their citizenship from them and, and eradicate them, both financially and, and you know, materially and uh, in terms of, their personhood as well. So yeah, it, it is the great irony. I think probably if you were interviewing a British government official who was who was working at that time right now, they would say, well, you know, we, we knew that, that the majority of people that we were interning were of no risk, but far better to just intern everyone and maybe catch a few right. spies that way. And then we can sort out who and, and release people thereafter than not to intern anyone and let a few spies get away who are going to help with an invasion of Britain. Yeah, and- that was kind of the attitude, right? Is like cast this very wide net Yes. And, you know, if there's a thousand people and only one of them is a spy, then we've done our jobs. That was that was the attitude. And but that and that's but that's so crazy. You say 80 percent of of the internees were Jewish then. So so I forget, how was it? How was Peter discovered? Like how how did the authorities get to him? How how did he draw attention to himself? Well, I mean, he didn't. He was he was just like every other refugee who come to Britain. He was registered at the police station. They knew where he was living. They had a card for him, an enemy alien, on which it had stamped that he was a Category C. So he sat in front of one of these tribunals and been deemed by one of the most senior judges in the land to pose no risk to Britain. But none of that matters now with the mass internment policy. So they knew where to find him, and they went to arrest him. You know, in fact, in London, some of the once word gets out of these arrests happening some of the uh, some of the refugees go and they spend the daytime in the parks and in libraries because they know that the police are only doing arrests during working hours <laughs> so they manage to uh, evade capture that way but um but yes uh, as i say i think uh, you know around 27 and a half thousand people are are arrested uh, in this way so so peter's journey then so peter gets arrested and then he goes to one of the um, the transit camps, um, uh, Worth Mills, correct? Yeah, he goes to Worth Mills, yeah. And um, so he's there for about five days, really awful conditions. Uh, you talked a little bit about it, but you know people are are sharing sharing beds and it's very cramped. and anyway, so so Peter's in transit and then he ends up at Hutchinson camp. what's What's Peter's story once he arrives at Hutchinson? Yeah, so I mean, he when he arrives at Hutchinson, the camp has been going for about six to eight weeks, I think. So it's already quite a well-established setup. the 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 British Army's policy was to basically make each camp quite an uh, autonomous, self-governing unit. So the way they'd sort of the government had, sorry, the British Army had learned this technique, you know, when colonising. <laughs> countries whereby you know the best the best way to control a people is to you know join up with them to appoint some of them as leaders to self-manage themselves and then you then you get far less trouble and so the camp had its very own sort of uh, it had a camp commandant who was voted for by the internees and it had its very own clear hierarchy and really british soldiers didn't didn't really enter the camp they just let let them get on with it unless there was like a real big dispute or, or violence or anything like that and what had happened at Hutchinson is just four days after the camp opened, you know, because it had this high 
number of very accomplished individuals, including you know, world famous lecturers, lawyers, uh, artists, writers, journalists. Uh, it had a number of people who had fled Germany and taken up teaching posts at Oxford and Cambridge universities, you know, the, the very cream of the crop. And so there's this decision made in the camp rather than just, we don't know how long we're going to be here for. We could be imprisoned indefinitely rather than just waste our time. Why don't we try and self-organize, I suppose, quite quite a German way of, of, uh, of looking at things. Why don't we just you know come up with a schedule of lectures and we'll try and make the most of our time here. And that's what they do. They uh, There's a, an architect called Bruno Ahrens and together with his uh, assistant, Klaus Hinrichsen, who I mentioned earlier, he's the guy with the Morse code and the bed knocking. Uh, together, they draw up this schedule of lectures each week and they appoint a committee and they call themselves Hutchinson Camp University. And what happens is because they're situated around this square, some of the lecturers, you know, set up around the square, they get s- stools out and they stand on them and they start giving lectures about their their ex- the subject in which they're an expert and little crowds of internees gather around them and wander between lessons and there are also musical performances there was a very famous pianist in the camp uh, Marian Ravitz who played in a in a piano duo that would play for the Prince of Wales and things like that and he puts on a matinee performance and and the artists as well managed to persuade the British commandant of the camp Captain Daniel to give them space in which they can do their work and provide them with supplies and so, yeah, by the time Peter arrives, it's quite a um, quite an established community, I suppose, with its uh, you know lots of events going on. There, there's chess, there's table tennis, there's a football team that plays against other other teams from other internment camps. So there's there's a you know if you were a 17, 18 year old young person, there you know, there is quite a lot to be excited about, I suppose. A you know, very yeah. different situation if you are someone for whom. You know your wife and your children are in London where the blitz is happening. They've been left with no provider. Obviously, very different experience for them. But I think for Peter, it was generally quite an exciting time. On the and whole. so this this camp is not it. It's this isn't what um, when most people think of World War II camps. You know, the camps in Germany come to mind, um, and just really poor, terrible conditions and slave labor. And, um, this is not a, this is, this is not that this is a place where, you know, even though people are, are imprisoned, um, there are communities springing up and, and the internees are allowed to give lectures or study art or, or do different activities. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's, um, what, tell me about the, the conditions of, of Hutchinson camp I should say that those comparisons were made between Wharf Mills, the, the the big converted oil factory that we that we mentioned. So the Red Cross send inspectors in, and in fact, there's a uh, inspector goes in who had already visited the camps at Dachau and Buchenwald in Germany, and he says that the conditions in Wharf Mills are worse than in the, in those German camps. Now, obviously. You know the purpose of the camps here is is very different. You know it's not to exterminate people; it's just to hold them until they can be can be sorted. So you know, in that sense, yes, it's very different. But yeah, some of the conditions were were equivalent, uh, although not at Hutchinson. I would say it's different yeah. there. Right. So it's it's 
So this is really these communities that spring up. It's, you know, they're all there. And so what are they going to do when they're there? Yeah. Although, although, of course, there are stories of that happening as well in the Nazi concentration camps. So, you know, I think I think it's really, you know, just testament to human beings, you know, when you are put in those very difficult s- situations, you know, art and creativity. If you're if you're an actor, you want to stage performances. If you're a painter, you want to paint. If you're a musician, you want to make music. Those are just very human reactions to imprisonment, I think. And so, you know, there are there are in terms of the cultural output of these camps, there are similarities uh, between between you know the concentration camps and the internment camps. We'll talk a little bit about the artist community at, at Hutchinson. You know, what, what, who were the artists there? What what were they? Um, what kind of art did they make? Well, there was really a range of a range of artists from from all sorts of different disciplines. So you had people who were. Um, were you know po- commercial poster artists, for example, like uh, uh, Willie Dubaz was was in the in the camp. So, for example, he would do you know fantastic Art Deco posters when he was working in Berlin to advertise holidays. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you had fine artists like the most famous of whom is Kurt Schwitters, who was a you know associated with the Dadaist movement uh, and you know was famous enough that during the notorious uh, exhibition that the Nazis staged mocking modern art um, Schwitters had a had one of his paintings hung up and Adolf Hitler in fact poses in front of it and the picture appears in the newspapers so so you know you've got he, someone of his stature is a genuine celebrity in the camp someone like Schwitters he's he's best known now for his collages that he made but uh, uh, he at that time was also doing much more traditional portraits within the camp you know as a as a sort of hustle <laughs> tried to earn some money he would charge people uh, three pounds to paint their head, uh, four pounds I think for head and shoulders, and five pounds for a half for a half figure. And uh, you know, bit, anyone who had a bit of money in the camp would would be able to basically get, you know, an internationally renowned artist to paint their portrait for them. And uh, and those who did did very well out of it because those paintings later are, are worth tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and but people yes, got pretty creative too, right? I remember reading. Um, there was an artist who would the the windows had like a film tint on them, and there yeah. was an artist who would who would cut out figures of, of I don't know like animals and shapes and yes. stuff, and that became like well known. So people became pretty creative with their surroundings. Yeah, it was like a, a blackout film that was put on. So the actual blackout material that was supposed to be used uh, had been lost in an attack uh, by a U boat that had sunk the ship carrying it. Um, so they had to get creative and use this blackout film. And so, yeah, as you say, uh, Helmut Weissenborn, who is a, uh, he was best known as a, a lithographer, um, but he yeah, starts to cut shapes into the, into the, uh, the material. And it starts a craze in the camp because you get people just, you know, making animals and all sorts of shapes because it looks really nice when the sun shines and the rays come through the uh, come through the the holes and the, the the etchings that have been made in this material and sort of bring light to the rooms. So. Yeah, I think like a one of the 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 Jewish blocks even had him carve scenes, biblical scenes into their windows. Yes, that's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. It, you know the rain, there was a wide range of, of of Jewish people, so you had very orthodox 
uh, houses that, that tended to group together that would they would not even turn their light switch off uh, on the Sabbath. They would have to get someone else to come and do it uh, for them uh, and would get in trouble for blackouts uh, for that reason. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you would have people who perhaps just had one grandparent who was of Jewish extraction and in no way were practicing. But um, yeah, so all of that was accommodated. And then Schwitters as well gets very creative in the camp. He goes around and collects up the porridge after breakfast from loads of the different houses. Uh, people from the continent were not used to porridge this uh, uh, as a breakfast food so it would make it much too thick and so it was almost inedible and he'd go and collect up all the leftovers and use them to make a sculpture in his attic room which after a few weeks starts to go off and uh, it goes through the floor a, right goes through is, the floor that... and is like drip, <laughs> dripping on the beds of the people below him so it causes a lot of uh, a lot of disharmony in his house but uh, yeah well let's Let's bring in some of the the other people then from from your title then the the poet, the heiress, and the spy. Talk about talk about them and and how they make how they end up in in this story. Yeah, so the the story Peter's story also intersects in quite interesting ways for for when you're when you're coming to tell a story like this with with two other significant characters one of whom is a is an heiress to the kempinski fortune her name is um, elizabeth or aiken uh, kosen the restaurant uh, the uh, restaurant fortune. hotel chain yeah, yeah which is still still around today you can stay at kempinski hotels uh, all around the world and um yeah so she she is when she she's trying to find a way out of Germany. Essentially, just before the war, uh, she has uh, she's not a uh, you know certainly not an Orthodox Jew, but is but is on the Nazi list not only because she's uh, has Jewish blood, but also because they want to acquire her fortune, and uh, she's trying to find a way out. And one of the ways she does this is by getting in contact with a chap called Ludwig Vorschauer who is a claims to be an inventor who enters her life in Germany and woos her and they fall in love. And he says, look, I will get you out of Germany to Britain uh, if you'll agree to marry me. And she says, yes, I'll do that. Uh, he, he also gets out her parents and also her children from a previous marriage. And so she manages to flee to Britain and uh, and, and then marries Vorschau here. Now, Ecken knows Peter Fleischmann from, from their time in Germany because uh, Peter's very wealthy grandfather was friends with her. And so when he was a child, he would go and play at the Kempinski uh, restaurants and uh, and she she looks after him. He'd go and after his uh, grandfather dies, uh, Peter goes and stays with her family in the summer holidays. And so they've got quite a close relationship. Peter ends up years later in the camp in Hutchinson. And so do so too does this chap Ludwig Vorschauer, who arrives at the camp soon after it opens. And he's quite a uh, boisterous character, very, uh, very noticeable and goes around boasting, you know, well, I'm a world famous inventor. There must be some mistake for why I've been interned. You know, I'm I've got friends in high places. I'll just be here for a couple of days. And then he also lets slip. Oh, and also I'm married to the wealthiest woman in Berlin. Uh, Aiken Vorschauer and Peter pipes up and goes well I know you're not I know her like I've stayed at her house I know that you're not her husband and um, so in this way these three lives intersect in Hutchinson camp it just so happens that Vorschauer is also 
a suspect of being uh, suspected of being a Gestapo spy by MI5, the security services in Britain, and is subject to uh, what is perhaps the longest investigation by the security services into any any refugee during the Second World War. And so while he is busily, you know, sort of going around proclaiming how he's only going to be in turn for very long, in fact, in London, there are two MI5 agents who are building up a massive file on him, on how he came to Britain, on how he happened to marry uh, Ecken, and uh, and in how these three these three people, how their stories intersect in interesting ways. Yeah, being married to the the wealthiest woman in Berlin, probably you probably don't fly under the radar quite quite so easily. Yeah, he was not trying to keep a low profile either. I mean, he was he was you know a big show off, and also because he claimed to be this very. Uh, after a few couple of weeks, he realizes he's probably not going to be released, and so he goes to he goes to the the British officer, the camp commandant, and says, "Look, I, you know, I'm a very excellent technical genius and inventor of of things. Will you allow me to set up a technical school in the in the in the camp?" And so he demands to be given a whole house where he can train up young internees in how to become engineers, and uh, the the commandant agrees to it and gives them this whole so he then has you know lots of comforts associated with that and it turns out he doesn't really do any teaching because he's not quite who he says he is but he does manage to convince some of the real electrical geniuses in the camp to to do the teaching for him so uh, manages to you know keep his position in this house for for a few months at least so how do some of these characters i guess we've been talking a lot about well how do how do they evolve over the i guess it's four years four or five years that this camp is yeah is, is running how do these characters evolve well the i mean the camp really starts emptying of its brilliant individuals towards the end of 1940 the government after the the disaster that was the arundora star public opinion in britain changes towards the uh, the internment policy there's more outcry and of course britain's position in the war has changed no longer is does it look like the German army are going to invade from France? And so there's a bit less pressure now on, on the internment situation. So the government releases a white paper to start permitting those people who are deemed to be uh, no risk to the British state to, to leave the camps. Uh, and there's also an opportunity for, for any internee who is fit enough to join the Pioneer Corps and actually show, show pledge their allegiance to Britain by serving in the army in this way. And so, yeah. You start to see releases happening. Peter applies to be released uh, because he wants to go to art school in the UK, uh, but it takes a very, very long time for anything to happen. And so while many of his friends and his tutors start to be released from the camp, he's left there languishing all the way through 1941 until eventually the refugee organisations manages to find him a place in Beckenham Mark College in London, and he's finally released. So his his story continues from there. You know, he's always dreamed of being this fine artist. While he's in the camp, he receives fantastic training from really brilliant people. He gets he wins the camp art competition. He gets to display some of his works during the camp art exhibitions that are held there. Uh, you know, he takes life drawing lessons from Kirchfitters, things that just would have been impossible for him had he not been interned. And so, you know, some of this training really stands him in good stead when he's eventually released. And he goes on to study at the Royal College of Art in London. 
He graduates uh, top of his year and is awarded with the Rome Scholarship, the highest accolade you can get, uh, and uh, then goes on to exhibit uh, in Germany all around after the war. This is uh, all, all around the world and takes on commissions for British universities and even the Royal Navy. He has a really interesting trajectory before the end of the war, however, because he he joins the army to work as an interpreter because he can obviously speak fluent German. And he is taken back to Worth Mills, the terrible camp that he's held in right at the beginning of his internment experience. Now it's been converted into a POW camp and is full of uh, captured, captured Nazis, some of the most dangerous, in fact, most uh, those who are most... Um, committed to the Nazi cause are held in Worth Mills. And so he goes and provides translation for that. And at the end of hostilities, he returns to Berlin. And then he also works as a translator during the Nuremberg trials. Um, So he's really present at all of these key moments during the Second World War, there for Kristallnacht, on the kinder transport, in the internment camp, there at the end of the war in Berlin and at the Nuremberg trials, you know, for a real gift of a character, I think, for a writer like me who can who can take that full sweep through. <clears throat> I don't want to give too much about the, you know, Vorschauer's story away because, sure. it's, uh, you know, that's some of the, the mystery is what happens to him and, and the truth of his story. But uh, so, yeah, I'll leave that to readers to find. Well, that's interesting with, with Peter uh, being uh, an interpreter. There was a... Uh, um, a story I remember hearing about here in America of Jewish refugees um, who had, had fled Germany in the 1930s coming here and then getting recruited by the uh, the army um, or yes. by the government to go back to Germany, fight the Germans and serve as interpreters because their language skills were, you know, they could speak fluently. Uh, yes. And so I've heard of, of similar stories here of, of, Jewish refugees going back to Germany to interpret and um, uh, to talk to a lot of these captured, just diehard Nazis yeah. as, as kind of their effort towards uh, one of the, the efforts towards the war. Yeah. And of course, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of eagerness to return to Germany and see with their own eyes, uh, you know, what the end of the war and how, what Germany is returning to, and what its future is going to be like, you know, this is, these were forced emigrations, weren't they? And so you can see why a person would be curious to see, uh, to return to the places that they'd fled really in a, in a moment of panic in many cases. And what's the, what's the reputation of, so obviously Peter, you know, he, he been, his, his career as an artist benefited from being at the camp. Yes. But, but I don't, does he, I can't imagine he feels fondly about you know, being interned at such a young age, much like other people, or, or maybe that's not true. What's, what's the reputation that these camps have in Britain today? And how do the, the internees, how do they often feel about their time there? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, there's no consistent feeling towards the camp among the internees themselves. It would depend on a range of factors, you know, what your individual experience was like, whether you made friends in the camp. Well, really, in many cases, how old you were, because that would that would uh, dictate the amount of investment you have in your life out, outside the camp. 
So if you're 17, 18 years old, it's a big adventure. You know, that's that part of life when you want to go and see the world and, you know, meet new people and all of that stuff. And you don't have much outside pulling you back. For, for older people with families and businesses, it was very different. And, you know, a huge amount of anxiety and stress. And, and when at fear. the beginning, it, from what I understand, you they couldn't, if you had a wife, like your spouse couldn't visit you. Now that changed. Yeah, it was all difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, when you read the diaries that are written at the time, especially from, you know, say anyone over the age of 30, they're filled with, you know, they're quite dark documents. People are very depressed. It's a long sense of gloom, especially as other people start to be released and you're, you're questioning, well, why am I not getting out? What have I done wrong? You know, who, who do I need to petition to help me get out? That, that view does, I think, start to soften in the post-war years. You know, for example, Fred Ullman was a lawyer and an artist who was interned in Hutchinson. He wrote a diary. And in, when you read the original diary, it's, it's, it's very gloomy. It's very depressed. He edits his diaries at three, three times during his lifetime. And each time, you know, a few decades later, and it gets softer and softer. And he takes out the edge. He smooths off the edges. And I think can maybe focus more on some of the positive outcomes or experiences that he had during that time so it's not a static thing however how people you know view view their internment experience especially after the war when the full extent of the horrors of the holocaust are revealed it starts to throw the internment experience in a different light i think because you can say well there was this great injustice i shouldn't have been interned i was obviously a refugee you should not have called me an enemy alien you should have said i was a legitimate refugee from nazi oppression but then when you find out that perhaps family members or friends had died in the holocaust it it makes complaining about it feel a bit different and as well many of these individuals want to make their life in britain they change their names from their german surnames to british english variants Uh, they want to assimilate and you know they're remaining furious at the british government for the internment measures you know is not a good way to 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 make peace with your new life circumstances so i think that's a factor as well but there are there are some people for whom definitely held a grudge and there was one uh one internee tristan bush who describes it as a war crime uh, i don't think many people would have agreed with that many of the internees but that just shows the range of responses that you could have and yeah i think in terms of the general public who were not interned it's an episode that is not exactly suppressed, but it's not celebrated. It's not addressed. The British government doesn't issue any big apology for what happened. Uh, in contrast to the Canadian government, which has done that, you know, the internment episode does not sit comfortably with the story that Britain likes to tell itself about its wartime character, which is one of a you know great, uh, just nation f- fighting the personification of evil. You know that that is. That is perhaps true, but it's also it's more nuanced than that. Of course it is. Things are always more complicated. Um, so, yeah, that's why I think you would struggle to find um, people who are aware of the full detail of what happened during the mass internment episode. Yeah, and I think you're throughout the book, you're rightly very critical of the, the British government. Uh, at this time, and you're right that it it doesn't really it doesn't match with the the image that they want to portray of themselves as as you know being being very honorable in how they conducted themselves as opposed to the Germans in the war. 
Oh, yeah, I, I think as yeah. well, America has a part to play in that with uh, Hollywood and the type of films that are being made in the 1950s. You know, they're very, they're, they're obviously celebratory about the Allied victory. Um, and so it does, it then starts to build a certain memory of, of the Second World War, particularly among, uh, you know, the, perhaps the children of people who, who fought in the war, the, the baby boomers start to have a particular view of, of, of what the war was like that's uh, a, little, a little less nuanced than, than the truth. Now, I know you said that the, the government has, has never apologized for the camps. What has the government done to, uh, to, to atone for, for, for these camps? So I believe there was an apology for what happened with the Arundora Star, the ship that was take, carrying internees, uh, refugees, as, as well as POWs to Canada uh, when when many people uh, died, and as well for the HMT Dunera, which is a notorious ship that was the the one ship that went to Australia. Uh, that was there were terrible conditions on that ship and terrible looting by the British army officers of the internees they took away their papers it was just an appalling episode and the office the british officers involved in that were court-martialed and held to account likewise major alfred braybrook who was the commandant at wharf mills the terrible transit camp uh, he oversaw the looting of of the internees when they arrived and they had valuables money wristwatches typewriters stolen from them he also said to the internees to keep them occupied if you write down your stories i'll make sure that they get sent to the government and they'll review your cases well he then threw all of those bits of paper into the bin it was just a way to sort of keep the internees occupied he's also court-martialed for that and goes to prison for six months so there were there were some consequences but there was never the it was never sort of really a proper official uh, acceptance that the government had failed to distinguish between legitimate threats and refu- genuine refugees from Nazi oppression. You know, people who had already sat in front of these tribunals and been judged to pose no risk to the state shouldn't have been treated in this way, I don't think. And that should have been, should have been faced and acknowledged. Do you think that do you think an apology will ever come? I don't know. No. I don't. Okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it's too far from the public conversation, the mainstream of conversation. It, it wasn't always like that. During in 1940, this was the big topic of debate in 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 government in the Houses of Parliament. As you can go back and look at the transcripts, it's endlessly talked about uh, in the House of Commons in London. But yeah, at some point it really fades from the national conversation. And I think many of the people to whom the apology should have been directed are no longer with us. There's very, very few internees who are still alive today. Uh, I did actually speak to to one, one man who was an internee in Hutchinson who now lives in the States. He contacted me after my book was published over there and said, I was there. Uh, I was 16 at the time. He's, I think, 99 years old now. And um, so, yeah, there are a few, but very, very few. So I think perhaps regretfully that moment has passed. What are you hoping that your readers uh, take away from your book? Well, I think, you know, the, the, this is a story about internment in, in 1940, but the question that underpins the book and that underpins this whole British political policy is 
how far can a nation go in the rightful defense of its values before it starts to abandon them along the way? You know, Britain is saying we're, we're doing these internment measures in order to protect our democracy and our way of life. That's, that's why. But of course, in doing so, you start to resemble the thing that you are fighting against. That's a question that will sit with every government forever. You know, it's a question that always will be with us. And so, yeah, you know, there's these are relevant conversations right now. You know, in Britain, we have refugees. There's a you know big political debate about refugees from Syria who are trying to escape to Britain on rafts, you know, often with a huge risk to their lives. And, you know, there are huge calls from the Conservative government here to stop those boats, to send people back. And the argument, I suppose, from people who believe in that nations have a responsibility to provide asylum when they can, would say, well, they're doing that because there are no legitimate routes for refugees to come to this country right now. It's far too difficult and there's no clear process. So, you know, these are debates that sit with us today. And I can imagine as well if there were, if Vladimir Putin was expelling his political rivals from Russia and they were coming to, to Britain in, en masse, much like they had from Germany in, in, 19, in the 1930s, then there would also be perhaps concern that there are, there would be, you know, FSB agents among that number. So, yeah, you can see how, you know, it would never be the exact same circumstances, but you can see how some of these political and military um, pressures might result in in a similar set of circumstances again. Well, this has been a wonderful interview, Simon. Thanks so much for 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 joining me here. My pleasure. Before we before we wrap things up, let's talk about your next project, which I read is about Leningrad. I don't know if you've ever read the book City of Thieves by David Benioff, uh, who actually created Game of Thrones, the TV series. Of course, right. George R. R. Martin wrote the yeah. book series. One of my favorite books. It's about two two it's about a, a two Soviets, uh, a gentleman and a boy who are sent by a, a Soviet general to go like find like two eggs in the middle of the siege of Leningrad for his daughters. Right wedding it was such a good book but i i had i knew nothing about leningrad before that so i'm really excited for for your project about leningrad yeah can you can you tell us a little bit about that project yeah uh, yeah i can so the book's title at the moment which may change but i think it probably won't is the forbidden garden of leningrad and it's about the plant institute the world's largest seed bank at the time was in the middle of the city on St. Isaac's Square, with a quarter of a million seed and plant samples that have been gathered from every continent in the world. The siege begins uh, towards uh, the the autumn of 1941. The German army surrounds the city, really with the the plan to starve the population into submission. It's a sort of way to, to claim Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg, of course, uh, without having to, you know, in a sort of, you know, using the blunt um, remote tool of war that is starvation and siege. And um, yeah, so by the winter of 1941, a notoriously cold, difficult winter where the city supplies are running out, 
there's a mass death event where people across the city just start to die, perish because through starvation, which the Soviets refer to at the time as dystrophy, which is a sort of made up, made up word that they used to describe what's happening. And at the seed bank, there's been a failed evacuation of the of the seeds and the samples. And so the botanists in charge of that building and that collection have this terrible moral dilemma. Do they distribute the seeds and the samples that they have to the starving people to prolong their lives for a few weeks? Or do they preserve the collection so that when the siege eventually breaks, they can plant the fields and feed a much greater number of people? So my book's about the, the scientists that had to make that terrible decision. Well, when it comes out, I don't know if there's if you have a timeline for when it's coming out. Um, do you, I think do you next have a date? Year. Next, next year. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite finished uh, with the writing, but it's uh, yeah. So I hope I hope next year or, or or early the year after, perhaps. Well, when it does come out, I hope you will come back on my show. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> and 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 talk about it because um, it sounds fascinating. Simon, where can people, if people want to uh, get in touch with you, where can people find you? Are you on social media? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Simon Parkin. And you can also, I've got a website, simonparkin.com, where you can find a contact email and uh, also links to the pieces I've written and, and my books as well. Wonderful. Well, Simon Parkin, the author of The Island of Extraordinary Captives, a painter, a poet, an heiress, and a spy in World War II British in a World War II British internment camp. Um, go buy the book. It's a great book. It's a great read. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed this interview, Simon. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great.